Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. The link is in the sidebar of the NBN website. Today, my guest is Michael Thompson, co-editor of An Inheritance for Our Times, Principle and Politics of Democratic Socialism, edited along with Gregory Smulwitz Zucker, published by OR Books this year in 2020. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Kirk, for having me. All right. Um, by the way, where are you joining us from? Um, I am from, I live in New York City. Okay, great. great. And I'm uh, from Trinidad and Tobago here, so I look forward to an uh, interesting conversation. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, particularly as it relates uh, to the book? Well, I'm a political theorist, political philosopher by training, but my interest in this topic, in particular uh, questions about social justice and socialism in particular, go back to um, when I was actually young. I come from a working class background, union background and um, started working in warehouses and uh, as a, when I was about 13 and um, was enculturated into the kind of union movement um, that, uh, as a as a young worker and found that uh, this really was a, a kind of transformative experience for for me um, because it opened up a kind of world of uh, a new way of kind of relating to others. It was kind of a world of solidarity, a world of equality, a world of um, concern with principle and, uh, uh, you know, human dignity. And this was something that was in stark contrast to the culture that uh, I lived in outside of work. And, uh, and where was in, that, if, if you don't mind? Uh, this was in uh, right outside of New York City in northeastern New Jersey. Kind okay. of uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, 
right. uh, where I was born and grew up. And um, this was in the late 1980s and uh, mm-hmm. 1990s. So the culture, in a lot of ways, was um, for, it, for someone who was a teenager, especially in those decades, was really just fraught with alienation and uh, a kind of uh, sense of purposelessness uh, to the world. Um, I guess it's kind of the result of the uh, kind of Reagan, Thatcher, mm-hmm. neoliberal kind of 1980s. Um, so we were growing up in the ashes of of that, the cultural uh, detritus, I guess, that yeah. neoliberal capitalism had produced. And one of the things that I found fascinating about uh, in my, when I was young about this was that uh, it transformed what the nature of work meant. That I was working here, you know, in a produce warehouse, mm-hmm. uh, kind of shipping boxes around in cold weather, hot weather, um, moving garbage and doing all these things. And um, but it gave dignity to, to to the idea of work, the idea of labor, right. and that was really significant. Mm-hmm. Right. That that's really interesting, um, uh, because. Uh, there's a lot of critique of the current SJW movement uh, as being elitist, out of touch, and whatnot. Now, you are coming from uh, from a working class background, um, and and in the 1980s and 90s, um, well, in the 1980s and 90s, I, I think the seeds of what's happening today were, were definitely there, but. Uh, but how does your experience with the union you know, movement and that you know very um, concrete, real, um, you know, uh, social movement and organization, etc., contrast with the um, movements of today? Because it's interesting. I you know I in looking through the the book, you know, I, I see. I don't. I'm not. I can't remember the, if it's from your essay, for, but from another essay. Um, People, uh, there was a phrase saying that, you know, essentially, if I paraphrase it, that not all populist movements are emancipatory or are socialist or should be embraced, for example, right? Yeah. Um, And then you had, I mean, and and I guess I'd want you to fold into that. I'd be very interested about, you know, the, your experience there in New Jersey with, you know, the Reagan working class, the Reagan Democrats, those working class people that, felt the Democratic Party abandoned them and you could because you know that that is very you know that has a lot of parallels with what's occurring today with a lot of uh, people working class people feeling the Democratic Party has abandoned them as well and I know I'm not equating the Democratic Party with democratic socialism but just it's the general atmosphere and I'm interested in your perspective uh, coming from that background I I f- for me, one of the if you if I think about some of the first lessons I learned about what was attractive to the idea of being part of um, organized labor was that it taught me a couple of things about first about the nature of work, but it also taught me most importantly about the the nature of authority and power, which was that um, the the that lacking organization. And also lacking the idea that there was a concrete entity that was seeking to exert power over you. Lacking that, 
your criticisms about your situation become diffuse and abstract. On the other hand, what it also started to teach me was when when you look more into the history of the uh, of the labor movement um, was that, and in particular, how exclusionary it was. This was not the reality that I um, that my kind of experience reflected. Um, mm-hmm. I was part of a union movement uh, where women and people who are non-white yeah. uh, were very integral, and it taught me the idea about the idea that <laughs> the first letter I got received when I was kind of member of the union, paying union dues, um, was signed in solidarity, and it had the name of the union president on. Mm -hmm. And this was just something that, to me, as a young teenager, was very powerful because um, it was the idea that said, well, you know, I I have common interests with people who who don't look like me or don't don't come from a similar place or background as I do. And so it taught not only about the nature of that, that kind of power, but the nature of a kind of equality that's needed if you're going to have that kind of power, if you're going to be able to cultivate a kind of counter-authoritarian, counter-domination type of power that's, that's truly democratic. I think the problem that we're in now, actually, is that one of the, pow- so one of the powers of the labor movement historically has always been that it's been able to generate, cultivate in its best moments, those types of norms and attitudes, practices, um, and really give people a vision into another way of living. That it doesn't only have to be your union or your where your workplace, but the other parts of society should also be um, just as democratic as this space is. And I think with populist movements, what's been happening recently? First of all, you when you as as the left becomes less and less rooted in um, the labor movement, yeah, it actually, I believe, is becoming more and more culturalist and actually a lot less potent as a political force. Right. And I think one of the things that's happening is, of course, I mean, if you think of what's happening now in particular, not only in the United States, but spreading around the world now, uh, Black Lives Matter as an ethical movement. I mean, it's 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 something that I embrace. It's something that I was I've been thinking about many decades about yeah. how do you incorporate race into these questions. But the but the nature of the movement on a on a political level has been extremely abstract, um, right. and in many in some in some cases immature. Because in a lot of ways, I think it's a similar problem to what you had with the new left in the 1960s. The question of whether ethical insights or ethical projects can be translated into actual political projects. And the labor movement, one of the things that gave, I think, the labor movement and uh, and socialist movements at their, when they were at their most robust, that power was only when they were able to, first of all, ward off the idea of trade unionism and the idea that, that this is about protecting wages and for us as a group. Yeah. And instead see it as part of a larger democratic enterprise about democratizing the rest of society. And also with the idea that said that class is one of the probably the most fundamental uh, categories for explaining the patterns of domination that exist, even in those spaces that are not necessarily defined by class, such as gender and race. 
but I do think that something's happened since the 1980s and 90s also, which is that you've had an intellectual current starting with postmodernism and now moving on to, I guess, what you call a post kind of post postmodernism mm-hmm. um, that really grounds all politics in discourse, in culture, in the symbolic. And right. that has really undermined the idea of class as a central category. And it's really allowed, um, I think it's allowed wealth and income inequality to get worse. It's allowed capitalism to get even more ferocious. Uh, but at the same time, it's been, uh, um, uh, and at the same time, it's actually, I think, watered down and weakened the left. That's interesting. Um, I, and I uh, sympathize with a lot of uh, what you say there. Um, the idea of, um, I, I think the term you're using there is uh, culturalist, that you know the left has become more culturalist. Uh, certainly, there have been observations made that a lot of what's going on right now in America resembles the Maoist cultural revolution. I, I don't know if, if you link the two at all in, in your thinking about this, but... Um, but I, I I do think that that there is this uh, this kind of link there, um, then that, that kind of alienates a lot of the actual real working class, and then I think contributes to the dilution that you are talking about of the left, and then also the co-optation of a lot of these liberation movement by neoliberal corporatism, and so you get Starbucks. And McDonald's, the largest corporations in the world, backing SJW um, yeah. projects, and I find that highly ironic, to say the least, yeah. and uh, and sinister uh, to say the worst. You yeah. know, um, yeah. what's your um, view on that? Oh, I well, I agree. Well, first, that um, it seems to me increasingly the case that. Um, um, any kind of uh, this is one of the reasons that. In our book, we emphasized that we're talking about the concept of democratic socialism as a as a as a specific tradition that comes out of the um, worker movements of the of the nineteenth century. Because the idea of democracy is so important, and not only democracy as a kind of um, you know what we say as democracy goes, but I think part of the problem is that um, when you enter into or evolve this kind of culturalist expression, um, you leave the idea that there is some universal set of values. Right. right. So one of the things that was really forged in the 1980s and 90s as a kind of hard philosophical argument, which I think over the past two decades has become kind of petered out into the popular political consciousness really comes from this idea that says um, all politics is perspectival, all politics. So the theory basically was that Marxism has collapsed. Yeah. There is no, there's no, that Marxist theory assumed in its most mechanistic sense that working people were involved in a system which made apparent to them this fundamental structure of domination undergirding the, the entirety of society, which was the relationship between working people and the owners of, of the means of production, capital and labor. And by the 1980s, the position had become 
in uh, left theory and philosophy, this like model Laclau is and gone. Mufa yeah. really is really the t- yeah. is really one of the turning points. So yeah. this so the question then becomes: How do you forge political subjectivity if this Marxian theory no, is no longer tenable? And you do this by constructing you construct um, an identity of that in, in relation to some oppression, and it could be my it could be it's my group or your group and each one and the and the terrain of politics is going to be each of us vying to get the respect and dignity that we have that we that we're that we're looking for we're always going to be we're defined by the power that we're opposed and this opens the door when linked with all these other culturalist concerns this opens the door to a, i think a major problematic which is um you actually shatter the potentialities for solidarity with other people in terms of along concrete lines of power. And I think the it's really as bad as the Democratic Party has been in terms of moving toward the center, the real opportunism in, Amer- in American pol- North American politics has been uh, the opportunism of the right and the way the right has been able to um, basically coax and use race in particular and use these ideas against uh, a, a more rational progressive left and it's working trump um trump can capture the imaginary of the working class because um it is populism mm-hmm. it's authoritarian populism but it's populism nonetheless and all the stresses and strains the cultural and economic and social stresses and strains which should be diagnosed from the position of, you know, that neoliberal capitalism has created this kind of, you know, suck up society in terms of wealth and value to the to the top 1%, instead of that discourse taking the political imaginary over, um, you've got this kind of almost this fragmentation. And I can tell you from being living in New York, when Occupy Wall Street, the kind of devolution of that movement here, um, that when it first started, um, unions and um, working groups and, and you know gay rights activists and ra- you know uh, racial equality activists and groups, everyone was coming together to mm-hmm. see to show to basically recognize that um, you know we've all been screwed over by this by the system of financialized capitalism. We've all been exploited. We've all been undermined, and. Um, and, and, and manipulated in terms of our political ideas based on based on uh, cultural attitudes and, and, and reactionary values. And we, everyone was able to come together on this, but it was only <laughs> the devolution of that movement was only when class really ceased to be um, the the centerpiece. So instead of class, instead of seeing the system as a kind of uh, uh, as a kind of totality where class was involved one class oppressing another class it then it started to take on a kind of a kind of politics of the possible which was more philosophical or theological than it was actually political so there was no talk about you know what kind of agenda what kind of political um what actual demands do we have Rather than saying we're going to create this Zuccotti Park, this space where everyone can be free and people can just share things, and this kind of utopianism that has taken over, um, it's particularly with younger 
members of the of the left and the, of these movements, um, it just fizzled it out, honestly. And right. I just I believe that you do need, and this is part of what I try to do in my essay. The idea that only class matters and the imagination doesn't, or only class matters and gender and race doesn't, is clearly, this is wrong. The only way to move forward from these problems, these kind of errors of judgment that have really taken place, is to find a kind of theoretical framework where you integrate the idea of the emancipation of the self, the emancipation of, emancipation of culture, questions of hardcore realism which is questions of economism and material forms of power, but also questions of political justice um, and social inclusion. And uh, up to now, the dominant paradigm for that um, in North America, at least North American Anglo-Saxon societies, has been liberalism. Right. And liberalism has been co-opted by neoliberalism. So mm. part of what democratic socialism must do um, is not simply talk about the 1%. These are really just, there's really no coherent I set of ideas work lurking behind a lot of what's out there on the internet, for example, um, or in some of these movements. I, 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 I can tell you reading a lot of this stuff that it's, um, there's just an, a real lack of, of knowledge of the tradition going forward, which is part of one of the reasons that we wanted to do this book, because to kind of try to piece together what a more robust democratic ideal looks like. All right. That's interesting. I mean, a lot of points there that, um, that I, I want to talk about since you raised them now. Um, and you had spoken, you had used the kind of opposition earlier about, you know, ethical versus political projects, which, which is an interesting distinction. And I think you elaborated a bit on it. And it, to me, it sounds like, you know, the, the old debate that even Marx had with the socialists, you know, about utopianism versus what Marx considered practical. Um, I, I, I don't know if he called it practical communism, but, but, but for him, communism was, was a practical mm -hmm. um, thing as opposed to the socialist utopianism. And I, su I suppose, is that basically the, what you're talking about in, in the current context? I think so. If you look at the debates that Marx and Engels are having in those years working up to when they write the Communist Manifesto, and you see what they're really up against. I mean, the most sophisticated of them, um, you know, like Proudhon and stuff is one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, all, they're really up against um, the kind of followers of Proudhon. They're, they're these people who really didn't have a theory of society. They didn't really right. know how things worked. And instead, it was quasi-theological. Everyone's right. brother, like, and you could see in these speeches that they would have given. I mean, no one would read this stuff today. It's completely useless. But Marx, the thing about Marx in particular is that he's also reading, and this is not as well uh, known in the scholarship, but it's, uh, but it's there. Marx is also reading uh, North American radical writers that were writing from the 1820s through the 1850s mm. when there was a radical labor movement um, in the Northern American states. Yeah. And Marx's writing is following these people, uh, like Arrestus Brown's, Brownson's early writings, but also, you know, John Pickering, a whole bunch of these, Theophilus Fisk. And they were really trying to come up with a theory about of wages and um, how 
bank the banking system actually turns into a new they were trying to show the economy as a branch of actual power to say look the 18th century was a fight against concrete political power against um, monarchy and against aristocracy but it just migrated into a new form and this is what marx took to, a, to to the next level and i think the idea that there is a separation between the ethical and political um is a is a kind of false analytic distinction. You can get caught in the ethical by not understanding the needs of the political. It doesn't mean that they're separate, Mm -hmm. that to be political means to not be ethical. The idea is that politics has a very different kind of way of organizing and disciplining um, your activities than ethics does. Ethics is in some ways separate from reality, because it's a belief I can have, it's a thought that I can have, it's a principle, but it's an abstraction. And Marx's right. idea, following Hegel, is always to make what was what was rational real, to make it to it objectified in the world. Right. And I think that requires a kind of realism that Marx knew was necessary, and that's the kind of realism that I think is lacking today. So you could take Black Lives Matter as an example. It's been reduced by necessity, but also through I think bad theory. To the idea that it's like this is police, not just police violence, but just organized violence against black bodies, which is an empirical truth at one layer. But in order to understand that that truth requires a kind of understanding of of a, of a system where I want I want dignity, I want equality, I want you know th- to be treated. Diff, you know, as anyone else. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is that um, if you look at the ways that capital accumulation, real estate, um, the way that society in North America, which is essentially an apartheid society, has divided racial groups apart, you realize that in order to make something like that happen is going to require a kind of some redistributive mechanism within the class structure of, of, of society itself. That, um, that race, that the kind of racism we have today is tied to the kind of separateness that class allows, uh, uh, you know, facilitates. Mm-hmm. And there's no, I mean, there's, from what I can see, almost no discussion of this. But this is essentially where a lot of those movements from the 1960s ended up in the 1970s, realizing 10 to 12 years after 1968, that they were going to have to challenge the power of states. And they were going, the state of New Jersey is an example, just as to give you a kind of historical example. Mm-hmm. Um, social movements in the 60s, after the civil rights movement and after its more radicalization um, uh, for racial equality and racial justice, finally those movements end up maturing in the 1970s and pressing for more and more equality. But they they saw. They said, well, school busing is not going to work. I shouldn't have to take my children from where they live and bus them into another community. That's not really going to solve the problem. And it's actually, frankly, still racist because it was like, I don't want to live with these people, but their kids can go to school with my kids. The real question, the real answer, policy answer became, you're going to have to integrate these communities. You're going to have to take what were ghettos and you're going to have to depopulate them and move people into the more affluent suburbs and mix people to have a truly socially, you know, a sense of social equality 
that people can grow up with with you know in a in a kind of common space. Mm-hmm. And this was challenged in court. This went up to the Supreme Court in New Jersey. It's a very famous case called the Mount Laurel decision, where um, they basically reversed this and kept the status quo, which you still which you still see now. And so now, for example, uh, the university where I teach in New Jersey um, is uh, literally you can go from three miles into the center of Patterson, New Jersey. Um, where the live, the standard of, you know, quality of life and uh, is extremely low. Three miles over into Bergen County, New Jersey, in, in a town such as like Ridgewood, which is one of the most affluent towns in in the world that the human species has ever in, enjoyed. You have mm-hmm. students in literally. You have two completely different communities living side by side. In an effectively an apartheid situation, racially almost completely separate, class-wise, cultural, cultural capital, social, the whole thing. And the Black Lives Matter, obviously, is as I said, as an ethical position, that violence and exclusion and marginalization has to stop. We're sick of it. We're done with it. And we focus it on police brutality because that's the that's the uh, thin edge of the wedge. That's when it really hits you. And, but there's all this other stuff that's that's there that's going to make this problem come back. And I think that's one of the ideas that Marx is talking about. That if you get you have to see that there's a real structure, a material structure that makes these symptoms emerge and reemerge. That it's not just purely racism. That racism in America in particular has its roots in the nature of capital accumulation and also the nature of who gets integrated into that and who does not. Okay. This is okay. So that let's get into the the book itself and, and the title. Uh, all all these issues are extremely interesting and I and and I want to take up uh, you know a lot of the points, but but we'll we'll fold it into the book. Um so I guess the first question is, what is democratic socialism by your definition? Because there are many, many definitions. And why do you refer to it as an inheritance for our times? So the the title actually comes from um, a book by the German philosopher Ernst Bloch, um, which this is my kind of translation of, 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 of the title. And Ernst Bloch's kind of um, uh, philosophy, and you have to crudely boil it down, was the idea that uh, there's this human project for um, emancipation, for hope, and utopia performs a very important function in this, that the ability to think differently from the reality principle of the world that you live in is the true engine throughout human history of how human progress actually takes place. So the inheritance for our times was the idea that said, look, we're living in a world politically, culturally, socially, where uh, increasingly defined by what uh, uh, Mark Fisher in his great book, uh, Capitalist Realism, defines as this idea of capitalist realism, that there's no alternative, that this is it. All your hopes, all your dreams about, you know, as an individual, but also about what kind of a society you want to live in, it's it's all here. It's all pre-programmed. Democratic socialism 
therefore, is this idea that's an inheritance for our times really means that we're at a moment where people are becoming interested in the concept of socialism again. They're becoming more and more aware of the injustice of uh, capitalism as an economic system, as a social system, as a embedded in culture. And they're becoming more and more aware of the kind of alienation that afflicts them. And so in the sense that it's for our times, it was probably for you know all times since capitalism really emerged, but there's a particular interest now that wasn't there, um, say 20 to 30 to 40 years ago. And so this book in many ways is a kind of way to say, tap back into that um, combination of, uh, of that kind of humanistic strain, the humanistic principles and hopes that the socialist movement always had um, as a kind of cultural project and project for humanity, but also uh, to talk about the hard facts of politics and what, what kind of policies and programs fit with the kind of dilemmas for our age. And so democratic socialism in this respect is a kind of um, way of organizing society for the common interest, for the common good, but a common good which has as its purpose the emancipation and freedom and fulfillment and self-development of each individual within that society. And so that's how we, mm-hmm. that's how we see this concept as a kind of macro-principled uh, idea of what the theoretical orientation of democratic socialism is. So would I be right in um, understanding what you're saying there? Uh, basically, you're putting socialism um, in into the into its uh, proper context of the Enlightenment itself, yes. uh, uh, rather than as many like during the Cold War, for example, would have seen it as you know opposite to the Enlightenment That's tradition, right. as That's right. you know as alien. Um, okay, right. Oh, well, so, can I, can I say something about sure, that? Sure. That's something really important. Um, the the idea of the Enlightenment as a kind of um, singular thing is, I think, what re- is really at issue. Yeah. Marx is an, a, a product of the Enlightenment, but he's also a critic of its more immature and early manifestations. I mean, mm-hmm. one would never say that Adam Smith, for example, is not an, an Enlightenment thinker or you know, Ferguson or any of these people who would have supported the idea of the market or, or anything. The, the, the real key seems to me to turn around what happens after the French Revolution and what that does to European European thought, that effectively there is this split that occurs between people of the Enlightenment, um, and it kind of goes in three different directions. There are people who seek to uphold liberalism, kind of a form of democratic liberalism uh, as a project, slowly democratizing society, but holding on to the idea of of a kind of capital capitalist private, you know, market system. Uh, a second, a second is rea- purely reactionary, that the excesses of the French Revolution mean that uh, democracy is untenable, and you have to go back to tradition. And the third is the idea that says, yeah, we want more democracy, and we want it, we not just to democratize the political sphere, but the entirety of society. That that basically that what liberalism does is leave out the economic sphere 
from the principles of democracy. Whereas socialism, I think, maintains that democracy has to be a total phenomenon, that it, that every form of power within society has to be accountable to to the to the common interest, to the public public interest, and that's something that. Um, capitalist societies today um, basically withhold it. So Marx Marx is looking back to ancient Greece, but he's also looking to modernity. There's this kind of synthesis yeah. there. Hegel's doing something similar. Um, so I think it's like this idea And then, that, if you don't yeah, mind, but, I mean, people people you know make this artificial distinction i mean marx was reading spencer he was reading he was reading ricardo he was reading adam smith i mean there was not uh, you know a, a, a huge you know uh, difference in terms of uh, the problems they were addressing he just had a very different solution but but he he regularly referred to all these thinkers at the time darwin of course i mean yeah. all, all the uh, the the mainstream and most important thinkers of the time. So he was he was part of the mix and not an outsider. There's a part of the mix and a crucial part of the mix because what Marx is able to see, obviously that Ricardo and uh, Hegel and uh, Smith etc. could never have seen, which is the historical appearance of capital as a socially organized form of reality that the industrial world is a unique expression of a new form of power. And, you know, it's it's this idea that means, that shows why history is such an important variable in understanding ethics or or, 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 or development of, of human change and emancipation. There's no way that Adam Smith, I mean, it makes perfect sense if you read Smith during his time, given the world that he lived in, or Hegel's justification of the market and his philosophy of right. And you could say to yourself, well, you know, it doesn't sound so bad to have a baker and a candlestick maker and a butcher. And, you know, everyone's basically roughly equal. And, um, yeah, it's great to have a baker. It's great to have this. What's the problem? The problem is they, didn't, they couldn't understand what capital was. They couldn't understand a technologically organized, concentrated. I mean, you think about the transformation of technology, for example, um, from say the 1800 to when to when Marx is writing in in, uh, in the 1840s, uh, getting ready to write uh, the manifesto. Technology for all of human history was a personal. It was a feature of of an individual. You would carry your axe with you, your scythe, even like. Pascal's machinery for comp- computing numbers. This was something that was for you. It was an extension of one of your capacities, mm-hmm. your arms or your mind or your ability to, to calculate. It's only really in Manchester you know, that technology becomes a social reality, that yeah. plant and industry becomes ne- necessary. And this is what Marx is grasping at with capital. It's a process. And that's nothing that anyone before him could have seen. It's just not possible. So I I think that this is why Marx is working in a new space because the react the neoliberal reaction to the social democratic social contract that emerged out out of World War II in western uh, capitalist societies the neoliberalism reaction to that was basically to reach back before capital's emergence for philosophical and theoretical justification for the market. If it's you know as sophisticated as Hayek tries to make things out to be, it's effectively there's nobody really talks about capital 
as a fundamental way, the fundamental way that Marx does. So reaching back to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, this is a big thing to do for neoliberals, um, is, a, is, is, a, is a kind of intellectual sleight of hand. And, it's, and it works as an ideological justification. And I think that's why Marx's idea of what socialism is, is so powerful, or communism in his vision, um, because I really think he saw it as a kind of modernization of that ideal of what, um, say, the, the most democratic of the Greek poles would have been um, in antiquity, uh, but harnessing all of the powers of the Enlightenment capacities for technology to emancipate people from needless toil. I mean, that's the kind of utopian moment within Marxism. But um, but I do think it's important to point that, point that out because democratic socialism is distinct. It's not an outgrowth of liberalism. It's not an outgrowth of welfare statism. It's not an, an outgrowth of social democracy. A democratic socialism is, is, is a distinct uh, political theory, social theory, um, and, tr- and historical tradition. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, that, that's interesting in terms of you even distinguishing it from social democracy, which, which in fact, I mean, uh, Marx was a member of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, wasn't he? Mm, yes. Right, right. Um, so... Uh, uh, I, I suppose there's there's a number of things I'd, I'd maybe ask you to differentiate it from, and, and you can take off from there, because uh, you mentioned the post-World War II welfare state, which, which a lot of um, people who call themselves democratic socialists in America would hark back to and look at the taxation rates and, and, and things like that. Um, and and you, you have made allusion to it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, do you see that as a kind of proto-democratic socialism or democratic socialism itself? And and uh, if so, or if not, um, what is the difference between welfare statism and democratic socialism? Well, I, I think that with wealth, in welfare statism, there's the assumption that the classes come to some kind of new social contract or agreement that uh, capital and labor and other uh, sectors of society basically agree on the terms of the game, but um, a little bit more uh, equality and expansion for, say, opportunity and public goods. Is that an improvement over what we have now? Yes, it is. But the problem really is, and this is where a Marxian analysis becomes salient, is that in the United States and England, for example, the the, the, the social democratic social contract was forced on onto uh, capital uh, while re- allowing capital to still remain in private control. Mm-hmm. I think the, the architects of this system said this is this is they've got no choice. They're they're afraid of of the extremes. They saw the early twentieth century. They're they're afraid of Bolshevism and they're afraid of of fascism. And so 
we've seen from the from the vantage point of say 1948 you can see what happened in the world over the past 50 years we let capitalism run amok we let it grind people's lives up into nothing we let it we let uh, you know uh, speculation run rampant and destroyed society it led to all these political problems and war and it's a disaster it has to stop um the problem is that um capital has as marx pointed out capital has its own logic it does not want to share itself with anyone so it's not until the 1970s that capital really got fed up with the welfare state itself in effect the capitalist class was sick of funding the social democratic welfare state so the you know one theory about inflation the inflation inflationary problems and pressures of the 1970s and this is something that conservatives and liberals always look to as a kind of this is the gotcha moment for uh say a more democratic form of socialism um is the idea that uh well the welfare state led to these bloated bloated budgets mm-hmm. it led to inflation out of control inflation and by the 19 by 1978 79 it was out of control and you needed a Reagan or a Thatcher to come in and discipline the excesses. Uh, it was, you know, basically allowing the candy store to be free. Mm-hmm. And the problem is when you look at this political, you know, from a kind of data perspective, it, the theory doesn't fit fit the fit the empirical facts. That really, what happens? I mean, to to make the the discussion as simple as possible, mm-hmm. is the the reason that the inflation rate went up is that. Um, capital basically went on a an investment strike. They said, if "We're not we're not going to be making the same. We're not going to get the same returns that we would have gotten back in 1925, and you know uh, that we reason we got into this whole game in the first place. Then we're just going to spend it on yachts and homes, and we're just going to be rich people, and we're not going to invest our money because every time we invest it, it gets taxed at a 78 percent rate or an 80 percent rate. So what's the? There's no incentive for us to invest." Mm-hmm. So instead, countries like the United States had to go off the gold standard and print money in order to meet their welfare ba- payment obligations in the right. form of public education, in the form of roads, in the form of everything that the social welfare state was, which is actually was actually the cause of of the infl- and of course fighting wars like Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, which which bankrupted the state. So <laughs> you have to print money for your imperialist enterprise on the one hand, but also to shore up the social democratic social contract because you're afraid of that fraying. Meanwhile, capital says, the rich basically say, we're sick of funding this. We don't want anything to do with it anymore. And uh, you end up in this kind of spiral. And I think the reason that I'm bringing this up as an example is you can see that it's only about 25 years after the social democratic um, social contract is kind of created in, in the United States and England mm-hmm. also, um, that you can see the class tensions were always there. Right. And that 1980 really represents this this reactionary counter-revolt um, against, against that social democratic. So the thing is, so the idea of, that it can teach us a lot of lessons about the power of what the state can do when it's democratized, when it's oriented toward common interests, uh, when it is confident in its redistributive um, and ameliorative powers, um, and it's a it, there's a lot in terms of concretely moving forward in terms of what a socialist what socialist policies should look like, it can teach us a lot. 
But one thing remains crucial, I believe, is that, and this is the real radical moment. This is where you make the, you know, kind of cross the Rubicon, um, is that, and Marx and Engels say this in the, in the manifesto as a basic principle, that no one should ever be able to accumulate enough property that they could control the labor of another person. Right. As long as that is allowed, then it's like holding the wolf by the ears. It's just a matter of time that it's – you may be able to hold it down. Jefferson said about slavery, it's like holding the wolf by the ears. Right. And you know it's not right, and you, but you know there's going to be a time when you know, you have to deal with this problem. And I think that's exactly what we're dealing with now. Well, that, that's interesting. Um, and, and I've got to say your analysis of the sort of rise of Reagan and Thatcher, uh, that's interesting because I, I, I've normally um, you know, put it back to the, you know, to the delinking of the dollar from gold and then inflation rates going out of control and financial capitalism going wild and, and whatnot with all this speculation. But, uh, but, but you push it back a little, um, which is interesting that, uh, that the reason why the, that emancipation or delinking had to happen there in 71 mm-hmm. uh, was because of the, the strike of um, capital. That That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, um, uh, and and yeah and and it's part of the a kind of a class analysis of history which which is important that marxism gives so so this is interesting so as, as and and you've said earlier that you know the difference between democratic liberalism let's say and if you want to put it that way and democratic socialism is sort of the uh liberalism's lack of focus on economics and more individual rights and whereas socialism brings in the economic aspect now from what you were describing uh, just now about um, democratic socialism, and uh, it's uh, it's the goal, I suppose, uh, as you see it, to uh, prevent the excessive accumulation of uh, private property power or, or private property itself, which I suppose inherently has has that power. I mean, that sounds um, hardly different uh, from communism. Uh, so what what is the difference uh, then? So these are all soft categories. I think that never yeah. really had a true articulation. One I one I think difference that and this is I mentioned the uh, kind of splits that occurred after the French Revolution. Another series of important fractures and shifts and splits, ideologically and politically, obviously occur after 1917 uh, with the Bolshevik, Bolshevik Revolution um, in Russia. And um, one of the things that also reasons that we were intent on emphasizing the idea of democratic socialism was also as a way of pushing back against the kind of rising um, romanticization, I think, of Leninism and uh, Bolshevism that has emerged um, in the left, in particular in the United States mm-hmm. uh, with younger younger people. Uh, a crucial part of what democratic socialism is, and this is its real rootedness in the Enlightenment, um, is the idea of, of, of a republic that it's rooted in rule of law, that is rooted in some form of constitutionalism, some form of equal rights for everyone, um, that, these, that these kind of fundamental ideas that really emerged out of the 18th century are not to be seen as bourgeois claptrap and ideology, but these are absolutely fundamental um, for a truly democratic society. 
Okay. So I think that that's a big, big role to say that, okay, if we have to slap labels on things, I don't know if, I mean, the, in, in truth, when you read what Marx is talking about with communism, the more he talks about what communism could be, uh, the more abstract it gets. Marx's power, I believe, is in diagnostic critical, that to show that, uh, well, in his early writings, that there's this new way of thinking about what human beings are. Um, and they can be alienated from that from that kind of human essence that should that's that, that we've lost, but mm-hmm. also the idea that communism um, harks back to my mind and my interpretation um, a similar route to the word what the word socialism harks back to that communism harks back to the idea of of a com what is common common interest common good which was central to uh, classical political theory just as socialism is rooted in the Latin word for uh, fellows, soci, um, mm-hmm. the idea that we, have, that we are equals in, in, in this robust way, not only in terms of economic interests, but in a robust way that we are part of a common enterprise. We are interdependent beings. And I think that this is really where democratic socialism, well, if you think about communism, what communism really represented as a political tradition and an institutional set of actual actually existing communism, um, it's it's a complete nightmare in comparison right. to what you would want a truly yeah. democratic society to be. So if if communism has to go, if the word has to go down with that kind of, you know, uh, and it, that's its association with that um, political reality, then so be it. Um, but socialism, I as I see it, socialism really is asking us to stay away from any kind of romanticization of kind of some kind of Bolshevism. And I'm talking about even pre-Stalinistic Bolshevism. Yeah. Um, but also to stay away from the idea that liberalism is kind of the same thing. Right. That, again, this is a distinct tradition. So, so you, you are definitely um, seeing democratic socialism as a sort of authentic Marxism. That's what it sounds like to me. An authentic expression of a tradition that really reemerges during the Italian Renaissance, right. which is of radical republicanism. Right. Uh, the idea of going from Machiavelli through people like uh, some theorists of the English Civil War, um, like Harrington and others, passed down to people like Rousseau and then inevitably seeded into the ideas of Marx. It's a structure right. of thought that has that is very powerful because and i'll tell you why it's so important to really and it's going to take a lot more work to bring this back out to focus um in terms of scholarship and ideas but because liberalism really was the reaction to republicanism liberalism in france is a reaction to um the what they saw as the excesses of the of republicanism during the french revolution so we're we're still operating even though there's there's a change in historical circumstance, from a kind of theoretical standpoint, we're still operating within the same tensions uh, within that structure of thought that's been passed down to us. So right. I see democratic socialism um, as do I think many of the contributors to the volume, but I see a democratic socialism as heir to uh, a kind of radical a radical republican way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But but definitely. Rooted in Marx, correct? With no, with no question, because Marx yeah. is the one who was able to. Again, as I said before, um, if you're Machiavelli, you can just t- theorize about a city, 
yeah. and talk about the Marx makes the crucial move that he can understand the logic of capital. Because because there is, I, I suppose, a tradition of non-Marxist socialism, mm-hmm. like uh, Owenitism and, and, yes. and that type of, sort of diggers, levelers, and, and right. whatnot. Um, and and in fact, in in the practical manifestations, now if we get into the realm of actual politics, like for instance here in the Caribbean, um, Michael Manley in Jamaica, uh, you know. He, they call their uh, their movement a democratic socialist, and uh, it was to differentiate themselves from Cuba, uh, and and later on Grenada, which uh, mm-hmm. in 1979, but and because Manley was 72, which we preceded uh, Grenada, and uh, and they meant to say uh, more or less that you know people there would be you know multi-party elections, there would be elections in and of themselves, other parties were allowed, they weren't going to expropriate uh, private property, um, but, you know, they, they were, you know, uh, they, they were going to make, you know, the economy uh, much more, um, you know, accountable to the people, and they were also going to fight for a new international economic order in global capitalism. Uh, so, so democratic socialism in, in this particular context here which you know really dominates uh so much of our historical thinking in in this area um it it part of it was sort of uh issuing marxism too because because there was a hardcore communist uh, marxist group in jamaica and in fact i mean i know a lot of these people personally mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. i studied with them because uh, mm-hmm. they were based at the university but it's very interesting but mm-hmm. uh, but it sounds a bit um so uh so your, so I, I guess it would bring me to this and, and to bring it back to the book as well. So I mean, so, so you have a, a very specific uh, definition, um, well articulated, well you know justified and ar- uh, argued uh, view of, of what democratic socialism is and etc. But there are other views as well, uh, and and so let's say in the book itself, um, I, I know you have uh, an essay there about the th- uh, the three. Um, Sorry, what did you call it? the three arms or the three spheres of, yes. dem- of democratic socialism? Uh, but the other contributors to the book, do, do you, uh, are there significant differences between you? I think uh, I didn't, I mean, as I was collating, as we were, Greg, my co-editor and I were collating the essays and I was reading through them, um, I, I wasn't able to find anyone that was in any way uh, at variance with the right. kind of principles that I laid out. What we thought was really important about doing this as an edited volume, as opposed to some kind of manifesto kind of thing, um, was to show that it's only through collaborative thinking that a more robust kind of idea about the potentialities of of what democratic socialism can actually be. That to come out of the mind of one person is is uh, just anathema to the enterprise. And I think that um, what I really liked about the, the, the other essays in the volume is how other people were able to reach into sometimes concrete policy ideas, such as uh, um, different ideas about banking and uh, public finance, Whereas others were able to reach back into, say, recent intellectual history and talk about certain figures who were trying to talk about socialism and its relationship to, like, homosexuality and gay rights. 
for example. Mm-hmm. And this idea that this, that these seemingly um, diverse or divergent layers of interest, which in academia would have been separated and spread out into different divisions of labor within uh, within the academy, are brought together in a volume, shows the multifaceted way that we can start rethinking the ways that a market-based, you know, economy, narcissistically organized culture thinks about what's possible. And the idea that any one of these essays could spark something um, or an awareness or an idea of what's potential is, I think, crucial. What we asked each person to do was not only lay out a kind of principal position, but also to show how um, there is some practical kind of hook in reality, that we can say, this is something that we can do. Some of those things are large. I mean, a massive public financing system would take decades to actually set up. And But the idea that these things are at the, on the level of the possible, not the level of fantasy, yeah. but the level of possibility, we wanted to connect principle and and practice. And I think that's, what, that's really why... Um, the different essays, even though they're about many different things, um, are really not divergent at all in terms of the in terms of where we we're coming from. Right. Uh, I mean, and, and when you look at the the it's like forty four um, different chapters. So I guess is it forty four contributors? Um, yeah, there's a couple that were co-authored. Yeah, so it could be know, even more. Uh, yeah, but there were 30, there's thirty chapters as a whole. Right, right, and, and I mean it—it's uh, you know some deal with theory. I mean we've been talking about yes. theory a lot here, uh, but some deal with uh, well, I guess is another theoretical aspect: the relationship of democracy and socialism. But then mm-hmm. things like relationships to other struggles, such as feminism right. or anarchism or anti-racism or environmentalism, the Occupy movement you talked about, and mm. market socialism, anti-work, all this kind of stuff. Um, the, I, I find this. I, I suppose I'm, I'm coming back to the theory part of it. I, I find it interesting too, because of uh, your situating democratic socialism uh, firmly within the Enlightenment now, and and the whole Lacan move um, post-Marxism, which embraced a lot of the postmodern critique of the Enlightenment itself. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so a lot of the the critique of the Enlightenment itself uh, then translates to a critique of Marxism and, and Marxism becomes um, uh, equated with Western Enlightenment, right? Like so, right. Foucault and, right. and, um, and whatnot. So, and, and a lot of these other struggles are very much informed uh, uh, as they exist or as they're theorized, uh, not necessarily in the book, but in general, very much informed by postmodernism and the critique of the Enlightenment. So, uh, so how how do you deal with that uh, tension there, uh, and the various well, authors deal with them? Yeah. Well, um, there's a kind of common stance here with this. Um, I think if you think of thinkers like Foucault and Laclau and Mouffe, I really, you know, I I think they these are thinkers that as intriguing and in, intellectually engaging as they are, um, have done more damage for left political struggles. Mm-hmm. Uh, than they've helped, and yeah. and I'll tell you, you know, there's a I, there's an idea that the idea that power has no center 
the idea that everything's inscribed in our kind of biopolitics or the ways that we live and these mentalities and ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's just as elegant as, as it is, mm-hmm. it's ultimately just wrong. Yeah. I mean, from the Marxian perspective, the idea is obviously there are aspects of power that are kind of pre-capitalist that are still folded up in our culture and our world. Um, but the idea is, again, the critique of capital is important only because capital capitalism, capitalist society, reproduces the same kind of power dynamics um, that were seen as deformative to a truly robustly human and freedom-enhancing form of of, of community and culture and society, that the idea that l- what lurks behind all the ideology of the market and capital is always going to be blood. It's always going to be on some level, whether it's of nature, of of of, of other human beings, that you just keep on have to remember that capital is the the organizing principle. There are people who control capital. There are people who make decisions. And the more oligarchical our our world, our global society becomes, the more amplified the power of of those people become. That, um, That the ability for bureaucracies um, and new institutions and new cultural ways of thinking almost always have their root back into who owns the ability to control the means of communication, the means of production, the means of distribution. In other words, a class, a, a, the capitalist class. And the idea that this is some grand conspiracy here is just is absurd. And the idea that power is just out there everywhere in everything we do. It's just not really a profound political argument to make. Yeah, I that, mean, you know, to me, yeah. to me, this is this this just doesn't. Yeah, doesn't help. I I, I think that you know, like it, people uh, having you know lived through that 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 um, shift from, you know, of the left from being basically Marxist to Foucauldian. Um, or, or even, you know, for a while it was kind of Nietzschean, but it was really Nietzsche through mm-hmm. Foucault. It was just mm-hmm. like a pretend Nietzscheanism. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, you know, because, you know, Nietzsche was not a nihilist. Foucault is, you know. Foucault um, is, yeah. And, you know, he, and, and he, he did emerge in the 70s against, you know, the French communists. I mean, against mm-hmm. Althusser, against right. you know, all, all of them were anti-Marxist. All of them were anti um, and, and and the Marxists and the left recognize the postmodernist uh, movement as being reactionary, and um, but that somehow somehow in the eighties or nineties somewhere it got forgotten, and and now someone like Jordan Peterson can just bl- blithely you know equate postmodernism and Marxism, where yeah. uh, you know it's um, yeah uh, you know that that's that's very strange, and and so. So your your book, then I suppose, uh, and the, the contributors who, who deal with these other issues that have been so informed now by by postmodern critique, I suppose are are, are engaging in, in that sort of debate. Are they in, the in constant, dealing with these issues? It's a constant struggle because I think whereas in the eighties and nineties it was still theory, yeah, um, 
now it's it's full blooded practice, mm-hmm. and I and in the movements that are emerging um, now um, with uh, that come out of the millennial and I guess Generation Y, whatever they're calling these cohorts now. Yeah. Um, the the reality is that um, uh, all of their descent has been essentially commodified. That's right. It's all been it's all captured by the market. I think I saw it was last there's week. There's a t-shirt that, for everything. There's a t-shirt for everything. Well, even like, you know, I think it was the corporation, the, in the, in the, the United States, there's a, um, a chain of, um, they yoga clothes and yoga studios called Lululemon. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation. Right. They have anti-capitalist yeah. yoga st- seminars now. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is, this is chic. Yeah. Now. And so when you when you and you frame it this way, and some of the most successful, you know, young people on the left, it's seen as hip, it's seen as cool, because it's precisely because it's non-threatening. That's right. Precisely because they don't know what they're talking about, and um, we just we found we were very really frustrated at this because um, if they're if they're if they're it, the idea that. Um, and Mark says this in one of the prefaces to Capital that you can talk about almost anything in common, you know, in, in polite society or in society in general. Once you move toward the idea of the redistribution of property, um, that's when that's when they that's when they call the police on you. That's that's the moment when um, all all the bourgeoisie will tolerate almost any kind of discussion about sexuality, about racial equality, but anything that actually deals with the actual core material resource of power in society is is a non-starter and i think that uh foucault's and and all of the 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 kind of cascading people who followed foucault and kind of Mm -hmm. amplified the theory to make it into what's sexy um really have have done so much damage to to not just Marxist theory and Marxism, but to the consciousness of what it means to oppose power. And that's right. that's the worst. I mean, you know, if you were someone like Marx, you had the French Revolution in distant memory, you know, and still a cultural collective memory. It was still there. And that was rooted in in uh, in previous revolution. And that's rooted in, you know, kind of overthrowing of the medieval world and feudalism. And that's rooted in, uh, you know, in kind of Greek democracy, they become increasingly romantic the more you go back in time. But now there's been a cutoff. Now yeah. it's as if these people are emerging from a sleep, but they've been given a script that is going to make them almost uh, by nature. Uh, your op- Whatever opposition you have to the system has already been incorporated into it. And by the way, if I may say, mm. actually, this was precisely the conscious design of of – of what a kind of uh, progressive era in the United States was called the progressive era yeah. was meant to achieve. Um, and it was in 19, 1901 or 1900, um, um, a really important progressive thinker uh, writes an essay that ends, he says that uh, moderate redistribution of property, some you know more lightening up on cultural attitudes will reconcile everybody to right. the current system. And it's been 120 years since, and it's a rocky road, uh, but that's that's effectively what's happened. 
and, and again, just to bring it back to the kind of movements mm-hmm. that are happening now, um, you know, it's it's frustrating to see that when you really have real injustices, such as what you see in in, in particular in uh, the United States, with the type of racism we have, the type of racial apartheid we have, and the way that that resonates with other forms of social justice injustice, that um, that this is not an opportunity for a broader critical and radical uh, kind of space of thinking. That really is telling me that uh, the uh, radical imagination has been seriously constrained. Right, right. So, well, that brings us to the question of where do you see democratic socialism going? Because I, and I want to put that question in the context of, you know, because one, there are, you know, there's a lack of clarity as to what it means. And people are embracing the term democratic socialism, but they may mean something very different from what you mean, for example. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Mean, you know, and then the Democratic Party as, as being part of that, be, being, you know, identified with it, but I suspect you don't you don't see it as carrying that tradition. Mm-hmm. So, so where do you see it going? So the only real um, possibility for uh, true redemocratization of, of society has to come from new forms of organization, and new forms of um, kind of bottom-up forms of power. And that means rethinking what the unionization movement uh, means. The paradigm for the successful paradigm for unionization, what was accepted by the liberal social democratic social contract was a form of trade unionism, which was essentially just protecting different sectors of of the labor force. That's almost been completely wiped out. The new uh, a new form of organization has to move has to move forward, where which protects people as wage earners rather than say plumbers or electricians. That there have to be these um, um, you have to return to the idea of the power of of the strike, the power of solidarity, the pro- and the power of organization. Only then, I think, can you start to think about higher forms of power and transition. And higher forms of, say, um, retooling the actual institutions that exist. In particular, um, one thing that I've been kind of pushing for as an idea is some kind of constitutional amendment that would, or some kind of capital accountability act, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be an idea of how you can insert within this, the structure, but. At the same time, all of these kind of political changes require not elites to make those changes, um, but rather movements from the bottom rising up with articulate demands. One of the great things about the manifesto is, you know, how it goes through this whole world, global world history of of capitalism and and then into socialism, but then ends with a set of ten concrete demands. Yeah for what the Communist Party wants. I think you need something similar to this. You need to have a vision about what's going on in your world. Or, or what You have to have a description, a critical diagnostic description of what's happening in your world, but you also have to have a kind of vision about what, what, you, what you want. And then you have to have a concrete set of, these are things that'll get us started yeah. into making these incremental changes. And um, that's a, it's a tall order. It's always been a tall order. Mm-hmm. Um, but the further, I think we're walking into a world where, um, 
the inequality is going to be so extreme. The uh, nature of work is going to become so much more alienated that only a kind of really dystopian future will be able to sustain it. A world where people really have no need for connectedness to anyone. Right. Uh, a world where people are truly anomic and atomized. Right. And I just, even though I see that as a kind of ill, a kind of phase of society that society might have to go through, there's always going to be that moment where people say, I don't, I don't want this anymore. Yeah, and at that moment, they're going to have to reach for this idea that says we have to organize, we have to come together in solidarity, and that's going to require looking back to the past and see how did the Austrians, you know, in uh, uh, after World War One, actually create a socialist municipality in Vienna? Mm-hmm. How did uh, how did the, how did radical parties do this in Northern Italy? How did they do this there? And then get interest in this again. And these principles and the ideas and these movements, but it has to start from a kind of reorganization, I believe, of 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 working life. That people who work, whether they're at restaurants or whether they drive taxis and Ubers, that there has to be a new class consciousness that emerges. If that can't happen, if that can't happen, or if that's frustrated, or that's or there's a further way that leftist movements just don't get it, then this what we have now is just going to persist. Right, right. I mean, the, the book has, you know, um, so each, as part of your your vision of what democratic socialism is and means, and uh, you yourself, as you've emphasized throughout this interview, and I mean, the authors in the book, try to marry theory and practice. Um, a, a few of the, the uh, most of the con- contributors are, you know, university lecturers and whatnot, but, but some of them are activists on the ground. And yeah. one of the, the your most high-profile contributor is uh, Bernie Sanders. Right. So uh, why, why don't you uh, give a little uh, reflection on on his contribution uh, to the book, but also uh, his role in this whole movement as well, as you understand it. I, I think Bernie Sanders' role in the movement has been absolutely crucial because he's been able and, and I think his essay in the volume is really great because he does link up um, the 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 he, he does propose the idea that America first of all America you know people in the United States should not be afraid of socialism that this was kind of a flavor of where American political culture has always been, that there's always been this kind of thread there. But most importantly, to look back to what we really just recently had, that if if that social democratic social contract is seen not so much as a kind of way of thwarting more progressive change, which is how some on the ultra left really see it, a way of shutting people up and just reconciling them, to the system, but rather what it actually was, which is that it set the stage for an affluent society, affluent middle-class society that began to question other forms of inequality and injustice, like race, like sexuality, like gender. It led to the 1960s, to alternative ways of non-commodified life, new ideas about sexuality. And then into the 1970s, when movements were really pushing for expansion of the welfare state and actually really toward ideas about real socialization of of private capital for public purposes. And he said, look back to this and look at, say, 1980s 
as a moment of reaction that we've been asked to, to live in ever since. And I think that that's really important, that each country has has its own kind of movements, its own past that it can pick back up on, hook back into for energy and ideas. And Bernie Sanders' campaign, both of his campaigns, really put this stuff back onto the agenda. I mean, Occupy Wall Street did for sure. Um, the idea of the 1% versus the 99%. Um, that was a radical new change in terms of the, the kind of public sphere about how we were talking about inequality. But Bernie Sanders really um, did more than anyone else to really make people talk about the word socialism in a way that before you couldn't talk about it here. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that it was like, well, that made people curious. Well, what really are we talking about? And it made this book possible in many ways, because um, before the, before Bernie Sanders, there just would have been no public acceptance. This would have been just another fringe um, idea. And he's changed that conversation here. Right, right. So what message would you like to leave your readers with after the they read uh, in, through all the, the various contributions and so forth. What, what would you like them to, to take away? I think two things. I think, first of all, that principled opposition to power is still possible. That thinking about a world um, that can be better than it is now is possible. And that the different contributed, many different contributors show that there are many different individuals or movements throughout history that really made a difference. Um, and if you're reading this alone somewhere and you look at the news and see how terrible things are, you have to see that things have been worse for other people in the past. <laughs> and there's going to be, there's, there's, there's always going to be that moment that you have to keep that alive. But secondly, to show that, um, there are all these different kind of ways that socialism can emerge within life, that it's a principle that can take on many, many different forms and shapes in terms of the banking system, in terms of our relations racially with other people, in terms of sexuality, that it really, um, and the environment and nature, and in a global sense as well as domestic and local, and to rethink and reframe the world from the reified way, really, that we've been all taught to think in lockstep with in terms of this capitalistic globalization. And I think if people can come away with just this idea that democratic socialism um, is something that you are rather than something that exists outside of you, Mm -hmm. that you are a democratic socialist, that you have to process the world in terms of thinking about power in a new way, thinking about freedom and justice and solidarity in a new way, the common interest and the common good in a new way, that if that could, there's enough people that undergo that transformation in terms of their own thought processes and ethical frame, then you've got the seeds for, for a new movement. Great, great. Uh, are you working on any other projects right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? <laughs> I have a book coming out uh, in November, um, which is a kind of uh, an attempt to uh, kind of start, kind of create a new kind of ethical framework um, for thinking about the common interest in justice and and freedom, called the Specter of Babel. Okay, um, and that's going to be out in November. And um, also, if readers are interested, um, um, I've been—I founded a journal about 18 years ago, 
called Logos, the Journal of Modern Society and Culture. Okay. And we publish quarterly at logosjournal.com. And we publish a lot of this uh, articles on these themes and explore how they apply in other parts of political and cultural life. All right. Well, that's uh, very interesting. And, and so where can they uh, check out the journal? It's at www.logosjournal.com. Okay, excellent. Well, thanks so much for this interview, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Kirk. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been very thought-provoking and stimulating. So Thank once you. again, the book is An Inheritance for Our Times, Principle, uh, The Principles and Politics of Democratic Socialism, published by OR Books. And we've been speaking to a co-editor, Mark Thompson. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kirk. And thank you also to you, our listeners. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. This has been New Books in Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. Okay.